Whether you're an independent artist looking to take their career to the next level, or you're a fan that just loves to discover new artists and new original music, making a scene has exactly what you're looking for. For the indie artist, we have articles on music business, gear reviews, recording techniques, and interviews with industry professionals. For the fan, we introduce you to new artists every day with our in-depth artist interviews and insightful CD reviews. Nobody gives you more. Making a Scene truly is the number one resource for the indie artists and the fans that love them. Go to makingascene.org and become part of the indie revolution.
somebody Something lost in the exchange All your thoughts are muddy Can't say if you'll ever change There to greet the dawn Your shadow goes where shadow should Night street lights are gone Another day wakes up the world Another day wakes up the world Another day wakes up was dan israel from his brand new release and we got dan on the line hey dan how you doing i'm pretty good how you doing today i'm doing pretty well i'm trying to stay out of trouble but it's not one of my many talents <laughs> neither mine neither okay now um i always like to start things off especially with someone who's on the show for the first time with um you know where they came from and get let the fans uh, have an opportunity to kind of get to know who they are so give us the story of dan israel sure well i mean i grew up in st louis park minnesota which is a first ring suburb of minneapolis and so i grew up kind of looking to the the biggies from minnesota like Bob Dylan and Prince, to, you know, that was kind of gave me the idea, hey, maybe I can, once I got really into music, I started to think, well, if these guys are from where I'm from, and maybe I can do what they did, you know, maybe not on that superstar level, but it always was out there that there was something that had happened already from my home state, you know, and I had musicians in the family, too. I had a grandfather who played the Borscht Belt, and the Catskills played in a band, and on one side, that was my dad's dad. My mom's mom was a concert pianist in Chicago at one time. And, um, you know, she taught piano up on the Iron Range of Minnesota, taught Bob Dylan's brother piano, was supposed to teach Bob, but I guess he didn't want to take piano lessons. Anyway, um, you know, there, there were all these kind of family and place connections to music. And then I personally just caught the bug, you know, growing up. My parents were pretty into music. I, you know, they were kind of like into folk music. I heard, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Pete Seeger, Arlo Guthrie went to those concerts actually as a kid. Before I ever went to a real rock concert, I saw all those artists live in Twin Cities. And then, uh, you know, as I got older, I, I took piano lessons as a kid. Then I took guitar and I started going to concerts myself. I saw the Kinks on my 13th birthday. You know, I sang in the microphone. Ray Davies held the microphone down, and I got to the front row singing in the mic, got a guitar pick. You know, it's kind of like after that, there was no going back. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I got more into Dylan's music, um, you know, realized that he grew up with my mom, basically. My mom met him a couple times up in northern Minnesota growing up, and so... It kind of started to feel maybe, I hate to use the word, but a little like destiny, you know, that somehow that I, you know, I, that I could do this and that, that maybe there was a place for me in, in the world of music and I got much more serious about songwriting. Now, I was a pretty good guitar player as a teenager, but I could see pretty quickly that there were guitar players who were a lot better than me and I was never going to be the best guitar player, so... I thought to myself, you know, well, what do I, what do, I do well? I, I see, feel like I write pretty well. I come up with ideas, song ideas in my head. Why don't I just try to make myself the best songwriter I can be? And so that's really where my attention shifted. I went, I did, I went to college. I went to kind of a prestigious school. I went to Northwestern in Chicago. I, you know, I was a good student and stuff. But once I got to college, music really took over for me. And I ended up graduating, but... And I majored in radio, TV, film, which was close to what I was, you know, kind of peripheral to music. But really, I went whole hog into music when I was in Chicago and started playing in a band, playing out in the clubs in Chicago, in addition to, you know, around the Northwestern campus and made my first demo tapes in the late 80s. And so it just kind of went from there. <laughs> You know, by the time I graduated, I was really ready to make this my life. And I moved down to Austin, Texas with another guy from, from Chicago, from Northwestern. And we formed a band in Austin, Texas called Potter's Field. And we 
really went at it hard in Austin from 92 to 95, made my first CD down there, um, played a lot of shows in Texas, even toured back up through the Midwest to Minneapolis and Chicago and stuff. And uh, then that band broke up eventually. I moved back home to the Twin Cities at the end of 95, um, formed a band here in Minnesota. We were Dan Israel and the Cultivators. That was the, the name for many years. But really, you know, increasingly I just kind of played under my name, Dan Israel, whether it was with the band or not. Made solo records, made full band records, toured the Midwest, did some jaunts to South by Southwest in Austin and the coast, got great reviews, even in some national publications like No Depression and Paste Magazine and Performing Songwriters, some of these things. And, you know, went over and played in England, played in Germany. Um, you know, I got named Songwriter of the Year in the Minnesota Music Awards. I got, you know, all kinds of, like, awards and honors and recognition. But I guess the one thing that always eluded me was the, the big break. You know, I never had the big break, the person who works for a big label and says, you're it, kid, and we're going to push you and make you a star. <laughs> that, 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 you know, it actually almost happened a few times. <laughs> there are some good stories about my almost, but mostly it's just been um, me plowing away and making a lot, a lot of music and, and trying to do, do it better every time. And so all of which leads up to this record that I'm just releasing now, which is really a re-release. So in 2019, I put out my 15th album. It was called Social Media Anxiety Disorder. It, I probably put more time, money, and everything else into it than anything I'd ever done. And um, I got to the end of the process, wanted to put it out on vinyl because vinyl is really taking off, and it felt like the kind of record that sort of deserved to be on vinyl. It was it was kind of a cohesive, you know, thing that I felt like held together enough to, to really want to get it in vinyl form, too. And it just didn't happen initially. When we hit the pandemic, I... I got focused on making other music. I put out another record and an EP and a single. But this earlier this year, this guy um, named Joel Almberg here in the Twin Cities had a small label called Poor Lemur Records. I sent him some of my music and was sort of pitching the idea of maybe putting out a compilation on vinyl because I had done that before. Um, and he ended up just, in the course of listening to all my stuff, he listened to this social media anxiety disorder album from 2019 and said, that's the one, that's the one we got to put out. So, you know, he's not a big time record executive. He's just a music lover who wants to help, you know, local artists get their music out. But he, he and I partnered to, to re-release this record on vinyl and we kind of did it up, you know, I don't know if I want to say deluxe because I think that has its own meaning, but we, it's, I, you know, we, we did blue vinyl because the, the record itself already kind of resembles like a KTEL record. That's kind of the joke is it, it looks like one of the KTEL collections of the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and we, we got, you know, uh, lyrics printed and, and, uh, pictures of all my previous releases for an insert. And I had, guy named Peter Himmelman, write liner notes. Peter is from my hometown, St. Louis Park. He's somewhat nationally known singer-songwriter who's on, he, in the 80s and 90s, who's on like Epic and Highland Records, and he's happens to be married to Bob Dylan's daughter, too, by by the way. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, um, so he's Bob's son-in-law, but he, uh, he's been a fan of mine, a supporter of mine, and I've opened for him a bunch of times, so I presented him with this idea of writing liner notes for it and he really wrote some very heartfelt profound liner notes I think it's sort of the gist of which is you know lots of people talk about actualizing their dreams but Dan Israel d doesn't just talk he does it you know and even if it's even if he's only known to a few people who are in the know right now he's he's somebody who's he said it so I don't feel sheepish repeating it, but he said, you know, he's he's approaching greatness in his songwriting, like he's kind of becoming one of the greats, <laughs> which was very, very nice of him to say, and uh, I thought we'd put that in the package there. So 
it's at least a stamp of validation from somebody who's had some success and um you know that's that's basically it i have i have two kids they're teenagers i'm, I'm divorced i worked for 21 years for the minnesota legislature that was my day job and i quit the day job in 2017 and said enough i'm gonna make music and that's all i'm gonna do for a while and uh so far basically been able to do it for four years so okay um you know that feels like a a win in itself just being able to to live off of music by and large you know well, that that's that's the, really the definition of success in the industry, is yeah, to be I able mean, to make a living off of it. Right, right. And I'm, I would not say it's easy, and I would not say I'm hundred percent secure in the knowledge that I'll be able to do this forever. But I'm trying to, you know, sustain it right now. Well, right. Whatever I've achieved, I'm trying to take that, go forward, and continue to play a lot and also hopefully make some connections in the next few years as my kids get older and I can travel more and the pandemic wanes and all this I want to go um, make some connections again with, with some people maybe that I've known earlier in my life get out to the coast a bit more travel more play play you know tour more and that kind of thing so okay. I'm trying to trying to make all that happen now you had mentioned earlier about how uh, you concentrated on that craft of songwriting and, you know, every songwriter has their their process, I guess you call it, that allows them to tap into the muse. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you do when you sit down and you say, okay, it's time to write, that allows mm-hmm. you to, to, you know, get things going, that greases the wheels for you? Well, it's it's always been the same, and it's always been a little different. I don't know if that makes sense, but for one thing, I know that I need to be in kind of a place of... I don't want to say total relaxation, but I need to shut off the the ambition and the drive to to you know to book gigs and to, to it seems like that's like a different part of myself that I need to sort of shut off in order to get into the creative space that allows me to write. And so I'm not saying that I can't do those same things in the same week or even the same day, but I definitely need to carve out time for contemplation to for like a sort of a, a go to a different place in my mind that isn't that isn't about all the daily you know isn't about I got to stop at the grocery store you know all these things that we kind of that fill our heads up on a day-to-day basis some of that has to be pushed aside a little to make room for creative time and um, you know how does one get in the mode to create um, lots of things for me, you know, I don't want to endorse uh, drug use or anything, but there might have been some things over the years that, that have opened me up a little bit creatively at times, um, things that are getting a little more legal in our country now, so maybe it's not quite as taboo to mention that. But, no, um, not at all. I, th- I, think that, I think that it's not so much about that being you know, so important, but sometimes maybe as a catalyst to getting away from all those things I talked about, all that kind of everyday stuff and getting on a little different plane of existence where I'm more thinking about melody, I'm thinking about what do I want to say right now. And so I use a, I use a, for years I used a cassette recorder. I mean, I really, it's embarrassing how long I stuck with a cassette recorder to record all my ideas and I have tapes and tapes and tapes of song ideas but then uh, about mm, five to ten years ago I, I, I somebody loaned me a, a digital recorder I'm like oh this is much easier <laughs> I can actually switch between all the ideas so I actually took my cassette recorder and played the songs into the digital recorder so that I sort of nominally digitized the ones I already had that I was working on and then from there on out I used the digital recorder and I I filled up folders worth of you know I, I have a couple hundred song ideas in a folder and then I start a new folder but basically I, I use that digital recorder and I use notebooks and the combination is what triggers you know the the memory of the idea if I don't finish it in one sitting then I can go back I jot down some lyrics and then I can correlate it to a number on the digital recorder so like this is song idea 78 all right well this you know these are the lyrics that I came up with that that fit with that or at least that I thought as dummy lyrics to hold my place 
that's what I work from, you know. Okay. Uh, but but I mean, I am reasonably prolific. I go through times where I don't write as much, um, but most people looking at me and my output would say, "Wow, you're just so prolific." I don't necessarily feel like that all the time. I I sometimes feel like I'm actually a little bit lazy, um, but I do keep doing it. Maybe it's the persistence and the, you know, borderline stubbornness with which I approach all of this stuff that that sometimes people really, at least in, in Minnesota, I've been kind of notorious for being prolific. <laughs> if the, you know, some of the media people are sometimes like, wait, you have a new album already? Like, barely got to your last one you know i try i'm not trying to do that to i mean output quantity wise isn't the most important thing by any means but i do feel like i'm continually trying to hit that thing that i haven't quite done and whatever that is write the best song i can write and sometimes that involves repetition or it involves you know playing around with the same approach but looking for a new little angle on it or things like that all right. Now, you know, a lot of songwriters, um, they they struggle with that, that one moment where they have to put the pen down, you know, yes. where you, you know, where you have to say, OK, I'm done with the writing phase. You know, yep. it still continues on, you know, in yep. the studio, even going out and performing it. It always evolves. But you got to right. get to that point where you move it from the writing phase into production, allow yep. the other musicians, the producer to put their fingerprints on it. Yep. What do you do to determine that moment in the song's life? Sometimes it's the artificial deadline imposed by life. You know, I've I've got studio time booked. I've got to wrap this up. You know, I mean, um, that doesn't sound very. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound like the work of a master who says <laughs> to say, uh, "Well, it's done when when I need it to be done." But that is realistically that is sometimes what time's up you know like it's either going to go out like it is or at least we're going to start it like this um i mean that's actually i'm right in the midst of that right now in some ways because i booked some studio time i've been recording a fair amount over the last few years with this guy rich mattson up in northern minnesota he's up on the iron range where my mom is from where dylan is from and he's got this you know, he turned this old church into a recording studio, and it's it's very peaceful. It's it's like you go up there, and it's sort of like rock and roll summer camp. So, I I knew that I wanted to get back up there. I hadn't been up there since maybe late 2019, I don't think. And so, I booked some time with him, knowing that he kind of fills up. You know, his schedule fills up. And so, a couple months ago, I booked time with him in mid November this year. Well, you know, a few weeks ago or maybe a month or two, a month or so ago, I looked at my calendar and thought, you know, I'm going up to Rich's and I don't really have, you know, and my band's coming up with me and I don't really have songs done. I have ideas, but I don't have songs done. And I, that's what kind of kicked me in the butt to, to finish these was that I knew I had to get stuff together. Um, it wasn't like I didn't have any sense where the songs were going and I don't feel like a, I, I don't feel like my approach was slapdash. I, I just kind of bear down, and every day I tried to make a little progress demoing these songs, getting... If I had one verse of lyrics written, I made I made it a point to write another verse and maybe sketch out a bridge and that kind of thing. And now I have them all in demo form, and the band is, like, getting together this week to, to kind of uh, woodshed them, I guess we're calling it a little bit. And... I'm not quite sure that the songs are done, you know, but that's where they are is where they are. Now, I can always make make changes in the studio to lyrics and that kind of thing, but it, it's sort of like, okay, now we're here, we're going to record them, so they're going to have to be done in, in a way. You know, if something really bothers me, I'm going to have to fix it, but more or less, they're they're at the finish line here now. So Okay. Um, well, let's... Let's talk it a little bit. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about going into the studio. Now, sure. You know, having a good song gives you something to say, but going into the studio and creating the sound, the identity of not only the song, but of you as an artist is just mm-hmm. as important as writing it's, the song. It's so, my favorite thing. It's my favorite part of the whole process, honestly. Recording in the studio 
I, I, I mean, songwriting is is great. Playing live is great, but and I'm sorry if I didn't let you finish your question. No, no, no. Go ahead. It, it, I just wanted to convey my enthusiasm for that part of it because I've always found that to be the most exciting. When you take that thing that was just a little germ of an idea, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, often you're adding bass and drums and guitars and keyboards and all these things, and it just it just takes shape in a way that validates that what you had in your head it kind of like okay this is what I I thought this would work with a band you know okay it does now you it's like putting it to the test in the end I just love the I love the fact that you have so much control in the studio and you can you know edit and you can redo and you can perfect and um, so I am essentially a studio that that's my element to be in more than anything else. Well, when you get in that environment, what what is your process that that allows you to capture your sound? Do you like to do it live from the floor and just you know put the band in, isolate them as much as you can, and just mic them up and let them go? Or do you like to have more control? Are you you know more into tracking, you know, and building it from a rhythm section up? Well, both. Both the end is kind of my answer because I've done both approaches quite a bit. Um, now, the Social Media Anxiety Disorder album was definitely more of a very much from the ground up. There wasn't a ton of of group live tracking. You know, there was some playing maybe uh, acoustic or an electric guitar scratch track to a beat, to a click even, and then bringing in a drummer. So that, that album was built very much piece by piece but this guy Rich Matson, who we're going to record with he prefers more of a live band approach for at least the basic tracks we do plenty of overdubbing so it's not like it's all done live but he definitely likes to get that that basic track down with guitar bass drums you know like as a, as an ensemble presentation of the song um, and so that by its nature kind of moves a little quicker too and it, it sort of suits what we do because I'm going up there to this town in northern Minnesota that's four hours away I can't keep going in every day and hacking away at it I kind of have to bring a band up there get down all those basic tracks and then maybe book another session to go back up or take those files and work on them in another studio down here in the Twin Cities but I can't you know, it, it's sort of by definition, we sort of have to do it that way in order to get a final product in a reasonable amount of time. But he, he's very efficient, too. And he, if you come in with the band kind of knowing the songs, you, you have the potential to knock out four, five, six, seven, even more songs in a couple of days, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's very cost-wise, it's also really great. (laughs) And he's very fair about about making it so you can essentially put an album together for for a a lot less than it would cost to do it the other way, I guess is what I'm saying. Now, uh, tell me about the lineup on on the one that you have now, the vinyl. Uh, Who's playing on it? A lot of different folks. Um, Some of them are from my core band, so the drummer on some of the songs is Dave Dave Russ, David J. Russ, he's been my main drummer in my live band since 1999. Uh, and I've recorded a lot of records at his studio as well. So he's he's a backup singer on my live. He's got a great voice. He's a great drummer. He knows my sound. He knows my older material. He, he and I have been friends. You know, we've had our ups and downs, but we, we go way back. And um, then... Uh, then uh, also the two pro- there's two producers on this social media anxiety disorder album there's one producer John Herkert who did seven of the songs you know recorded at his home studio and then this guy Steve Price uh, five of the songs at his home studio well John Herkert's a guitar player he's a bass player he's a keyboard player so he played a lot of that stuff on the songs I recorded with him and same thing with Steve Price plays bass mainly but he also you know as keyboards and then we brought in another drummer over at Steve Price's studio Peter Anderson who's he plays at this band The Ocean Blue they're kind of a national thing and he's played with the Jayhawks and 
all kinds of uh, the more prominent artists here in the Twin Cities. Um, and then we we brought in uh, this guitarist, Steve Brancic, who's become a big part of my regular live band. Mike Lane is, uh, he's, I have a regular live bass player, but he didn't end up playing on that album because these producers were such amazing bass players that my regular bass player Mike Lane didn't come in and play on that particular record but um so we and we just record we recruited people who play in the Twin Cities with a lot of the better known bands like the Suburbs and um just just a lot of, we kind of have a, a little scene here where it, it's not hard to find incredible players and so uh, um, you know the guy who plays trumpet is also my son's trumpet teacher you know <laughs> like it's it's a family affair kind of um, and we just you know really brought in the people that we thought could do the best job on all these and a couple amazing women singers came in and laid down vocals and um you know, just just feel like we sort of had an all star cast on this, at least okay. in terms of who in the Twin Cities. Now, of course, once you get it recorded, you have to get it out there, and you have to put a team together. And you're working with Krista uh, Valenskis. Um, tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that relationship. Well, Krista is somebody I've known and admired, respected since the '90s. Um, she's like me, sort of a. a veteran of this scene and has um, just, she's done the work she knows how things go she's easy to work with she's she's resourceful and so that's why I go back to her you know and, and hire her for project after project because she and, and you know she just she gets she gets the job done and she does it well and she's easy to, to relate to um doesn't charge me an arm and a leg either. Um, she, uh, you know, I think in this day and age, as much as I've always tried to embrace the DIY aesthetic and do as much of, as possible as myself as I could, um, it's gotten to be where you somewhat need a PR person, no matter what, I think, to cut through a little bit. Um, you know, it's just, there's just so many people making records, as you know, and and so much out there that you kind of need somebody to advocate for you and to get the attention of media outlets and radio, you know, radio people and print and online media and all of this kind of thing. And so, uh, it, it I feel like if you're going to take the trouble and the expense of putting together a record that you're really proud of, then you you need to at least budget for some kind of promotion. Um, you know, somebody to help you with that. I, I And it's advice I give other people, too. I don't just... I, I live it. I tell people, look, you know, if you want people to hear it, you're going to have to have to find a way to have some kind of promotional budget for this, you know? Right. And, and it's great to be DIY, but, but you need a little help these days, too, I think. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, getting your music out there and, of course, the economics of it all. Um, you know, we've been in this digital revolution now for a little over 20 years, and it's, yep. it has redefined the industry several times over. And we're in this this space now where the consumer no longer looks at recorded music as a product. You right. know, it's, it's now right. a service. It's available right. on their phone. They can listen yep. to anything that's been yep. recorded in the last hundred years at the flick of a finger. Yep. How has this shift in the consumer's perception of music affected you as an artist? Well, it means a lot more of my garage is taken up with unsold CDs. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I've done okay despite all of this, um, but it's, it's, it's been hard. It's been a jolt. To realize, and I don't think a lot of us, I would not say I got it right away. I think I held pretty firmly to the idea, okay, no, we're going to keep putting out CDs and this is how it's going to be. And then you start to realize, but not many people are buying them anymore, you know? And they're making new cars that don't have CD players. That was a real eye-opening moment a couple of years ago when I realized my friends were buying cars that didn't have CD players, some of them. And I'm like, whoa, 
why would anybody buy a CD then from me? Isn't the car one of the main places people mm-hmm. listen to? So it it has caused caused a reckoning. Uh, it's caused a loss of revenue from recorded music that can't possibly be easily made up, um, and it's caused a lot of us to look at trying to do some vinyl because it's one of the few ways that it can't be completely duplicated. I mean, there's something about vinyl that's still special. Now, making the money back from doing vinyl is a tall order when you're a small-time independent artist. Um, I think part of the reason to do vinyl is just because, A, there are those people out there who really means a lot to them. You do have some fans that are really gung-ho to get your product on vinyl. And then, really, it's sort of like immortalizing something that seems so throwaway, you know? The the more that music was digitized and turned into something that people just stream on their phones, the more it felt like something that was so easy to just delete, throw away, you know, it felt less and less permanent. And I re- I'm fully aware that it, it never probably was permanent in the first place, What is what's permanent, but it just felt much more ephemeral and throwaway. And um, it's a, I've also, though, you know, I bemoaned it for so long. I bemoaned that whole change. And then at a certain point, you kind of go, okay, if this is how it is, you know what? I'm going to get Spotify premium for myself. I'm going to make playlists for myself that, you know, full of my favorite songs. And I'm going to utilize it to, to enjoy music. I And I have kind of, uh, you know, it's like, I could fight it forever or I could embrace it a little bit and enjoy some of it. And I, I, I guess I, I'll admit I've, I was a fierce resistor to, to streaming and downloading. And now I do listen to a fair amount of music that way. Well, you uh, know, however, yeah. you know, I also do listen to records still. <laughs> well, I mean, I also have a record collection. I have a turntable, but right. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if you're making vinyl, I mean, it's a collector's item. They're going to still listen right. to you on Spotify. Yep. You yep. know, most, right. it, you it's know, going to replace, right. It, it's, it's, it's another means, but right, a lot of the same people buying the vinyl are probably still going to listen to your streaming. Yeah, yeah. and you know, <laughs> what I've found is a lot of these young kids that that say they're into vinyl have mm-hmm. absolutely no clue of what audiophile means. They None. don't know how to listen to vinyl. They got these little right. USB turntables. Crosley, Crosley turntables that, that sound yeah. like crap. Yeah, yeah, and they stick in these little earbuds and think that right. they're listening to vinyl. No. Right. You no. need to have, you know, I remember when we used to finance our speakers, right. you know, because right. it was an important component of a system. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, yes, I, I, I remember the days. I'm an old guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it does, there is something about putting a needle down on a piece of vinyl and having it come out through speakers that are good speakers it's it's visceral it's powerful it's you know it's an experience it can't be duplicated with with earbuds and you know so i i i I hear you and i feel badly that kids are missing out on some of that i really do i'm trying to pass it on to my own kids the love of you know of listening to music this way you know um because I, I do think that they're they're getting shortchanged in a way. They are. Yeah. You know, compressed files and, you know, it's, it's not the same. No, so. it's definitely not the same. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I've noticed, um, you know, with the, uh, the onset of the pandemic and the shutdown of touring, a lot of independent artists gravitated towards social media and the Internet. They started doing live shows. They started yep. to work their social media. And yep. it really kind of accelerated this, I believe, what is the next phase for mm-hmm. streaming and for independent artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Is that the fans really got an inside look at the artists that they listen to. 
if they went listen to a, a live stream, they usually was in the artist's living room or in their on their porch or in their bedroom. Yeah, it's, very, it's very intimate. Yeah, to have your fans seeing you in your own living room, right? Yeah, so um, they they got to see behind the scenes. Yeah, and a lot of artists, you know, they started using platforms like TikTok and Clapper. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. interact with the with the fans, um, mm-hmm. you know, like Tim McGraw would mm-hmm. go on and find people that were covering his songs, and sure. then he would do a duet and and comment on it. You know, sure. love your voice. Mm-hmm. I like this arrangement. Right. Whatever. You know, mm-hmm. David Grohl. You know, he was doing mm-hmm. drum offs with the eleven year old girl drummer. Yeah, that's so cool. And, you know, ended up bringing her on stage at a Foo Fighters concert. You know, she's ruined for life, you know. Right. Nothing will ever measure up to that. No. But, you know, that interaction, even though that not every fan is going to get it, it's all about that branding, that, that ability to give the hope to the fan that they, they too could have a uh, relationship even if it's online with the right. with the artist that they um idolize you well, know what i mean i do know what you mean and it, i got to say as much as i have lots of negative views about some of the social media platforms for various reasons that we could go on and on about there there was an element of this during the pandemic where this was a lifeline and i'm not i'm not I, I can't overlook how much it was a lifeline for me and other small, you know, independent artists because the clubs were shut down. There was no way to perform live, and yet we were able to play for our fans. And and actually, when it first started, you know, when the live streaming first really began, I guess maybe spring of 2020, um, people were really into it. You know, it was it was kind of a big deal. I took in a lot of tips that way. You know, it was people were generous, people were enthused about it, and it felt like something that you were giving people that they really kind of needed at that time. Um, now, then, when summer came around in 2020, what happened for me was I um, started to get tap into a network in the Twin Cities here of like some private shows and I, I one night I brought my guitar to a park near my house and it turned into there was a guy there from Minneapolis who was actually from a part of town where a lot of the rioting happened after the George Floyd incident and he, he was looking for a way to kind of help his neighborhood heal and he ended up hiring me to come play on his block and that, that led to other gigs like this and it actually became one of the biggest summers of of my whole career, uh, summer of 2020, with with those private shows, mm-hmm. you know, playing for people in their yards and that kind of thing, um, and that actually carried over somewhat to this past summer 2021 as well. So uh, now, I guess when you talk about the live streaming, I haven't really, I have some gigs coming up, but I, ha- I don't have tons, and I've been thinking, okay, maybe I am going to do some live streaming again this year, and. It doesn't seem scary to me because I've already done it, you know. Right. It's just, is, is the audience going to be, I think it'll be different, you know, and, and everything's different all the time right now. It's we, We're just always in uncharted territory with this, with the last couple of years. So I think there'll be an audience for it. I don't think it'll quite be the way it was right at the beginning of the pandemic where it felt like this lifeline to people emotionally. But I think, especially in the, deep dark long minnesota winter it still may it still may be something that people gravitate towards so i'm keeping options open on that kind of thing and i think i'll probably end up doing some of that again as well well uh, you know you look you look towards the future and and one of the things i think is is big is this whole idea of the metaverse the web three right. um you know where you're not going to be on the internet you're going to be in the internet you know it's an immersive experience and what i see happening i think in the future is that um artists are going to be able to create their own digital bubble their own digital universe that their fans can then become part of they can now you know come into their their little world right and and be part of the like almost a personal connection to the artist you know part of the group more or less you know what and, i mean and 
I do. And maybe one thing I was thinking when we were doing all the live streaming in 2020 was, well, how far are we from being able to do this? Like where I'm sort of like a hologram, you know, where, where people, instead of just watching me on their computer screen can feel like I'm in the room with them. I don't think we're very far off from it probably already can be done. It's just, we don't really have the mass means of doing it yet, but you know, well, believe I mean, it or not, there are, there have been artists that have been uh, performing in Second Life for. I mean, I used I did an interview with with a performer from Second Life um, mm-hmm. maybe fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. You know right. where so, where they would perform in this virtual world, right? And right. now it's, I think you know with with you know the the admin of video being so so accessible with our cell phones, right? That this is very doable. You know, yes. putting up a little screen and basically yes. performing in front of you know your fans, right? You know, having a private concert, right? You know, and this whole world of. Um, uh, where where they're talking about the NFT, the uh, yeah. non fungible tokens, right? You can encapsulate this ticket for this you know virtual concert, which mm-hmm. they've already been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Billie Eilish has done it. I think uh, right. uh, a few other artists have have uh, have already started to do these types of virtual concerts, right? Um, where you get a virtual ticket, right. and you know with these you know, avatars in this virtual world, you can actually sell, and believe it or not, people buy clothes for their avatars. So think of it this way. (laughs) You can have a virtual T-shirt that you can sell to people's avatars. That is crazy. Think about it. It costs you nothing. Right. And, you know, you can create these avatars, I mean, these NFTs with these T-shirts in it. Right. And then built into it with the smart count contracts that you get 10% of of the resale. So if someone sure. decides to resell your t-shirt, yeah. you get a piece of the pie. It's amazing. I mean, the future is beyond what we can even uh, No, I mean, I I'm and I'm interested in any way I can make all this uh work, you know, and uh, including all of that. So I I haven't really I've only dipped my toe in the, not even really that part of it yet. Um, but I, I hope that, you know, we get a little bit more infrastructure there for artists to, to do these things and, and make them work. Um, well, it, it's, intrigued, it's a but. great way for the artists to cut out these large corporations sure. and, and create a marketplace where they have total control over their product. Mm-hmm. You know yep. what I mean? Uh, yep. Spotify and Apple and all these large corporations right. are making fortunes off of independent artists. Believe it or not, right. that's where the big money's coming from. Yep. And yep. and you know they're not putting out the you know the the proper um, amount of compensation. Right. But if we take the um, this whole idea of um, the metaverse and NFTs and so on, and create a marketplace that we control. Yes. Then they're at our mercy. Right. No, I I totally hear you, and I I think something like Bandcamp. I know a lot of my friends and I all feel you know at least Bandcamp is something where we actually get get a, a decent payday for what we do. You know, people pay for downloads, and we mm-hmm. get. We get most of the money, you know, um, and there are people who will, and you can sell merch through it too. So, um, I think some of these kinds of, uh, you know, we've all, I think, been frustrated with Spotify and the rates that are paid for streaming. I mean, everybody, even the, the bigger artists are frustrated too with that, but especially independent artists because, you know, it's a pretty minuscule amount of, of money. We take what we can get, don't get me wrong, but but right, it's it feels like we're at the mercy of larger forces with some of that stuff. So any way that we can per, you know, bring it back under our control I think is a big plus. <clears throat> okay. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us and uh we're going to give so everyone out there a double shot from your new release. And uh, you guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs>
nothing's got a hold of me I want love but I must be free Can't see what my future brings Can't decide on anything Once I had it figured out And I came face to face with doubt Got stuck on the difference Then I lost my confidence
independent artist looking to take their career to the next level or you're a fan that just loves to discover new artists and new original music making a scene has exactly what you're looking for for the indie artist we have articles on music business gear reviews recording techniques and interviews with industry professionals for the fan we introduce you to new artists every day with our in-depth artist interviews and insightful CD reviews. Nobody gives you more. Making a Scene truly is the number one resource for the indie artists and the fans that love them. Go to makingascene.org and become part of the indie revolution. Shout now, honey! 